Channel 10. <laughs> I want to give you a big thank you for checking out the Channel 10 podcast and ask you to please support the show by subscribing, rating, liking, commenting, favoriting on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, uh, Google Play Music, wherever you get your podcast from. That little bit definitely helps us to grow and expand the show. Tell a friend to tell a friend. If you have any questions, comments, sponsorship opportunities, or just want to say what's up to the Channel 10 Podcast, you can shoot us an email, channel10podcast at gmail.com. Or you can also send us a text or leave us a voicemail. Just hit us up at 443-885-0997. Also, please check out channel10podcast.com. There you can check out all of the back episodes of the show, as well as keep up with everything that Singard Superior and myself, Artic, have going on. There you'll also find links to all of our social media to connect with us. And also, you can order a t-shirt by clicking on the link at the top of the page. Also, you can show support by shopping through our Amazon portal at no cost to you whatever you buy will get a little percentage of it so you know definitely show some support we really appreciate it channel 10 podcast presents the wu-tang podcast where we break down the wu-tang clan's discography album by album check it out at wu-tangpodcast.com and search for wu-tang podcast wherever you get your podcast from definitely rate subscribe support that show tell a friend to tell a friend we really appreciate it Aside from this podcast, both myself and Singar Superior have a lot going on. You can check out all of Singar Superior's new music by going to SingarSuperior.com or looking out for them on iTunes, Apple Music, Spotify, Tidal, wherever you get your music from. Same thing for myself. Check out everything I have going on at TheAlmightyAR.com. We used to be like, see you there, Channel 10. And we used to think the people would catch on. You know but if you're not from Queens, <laughs> if you don't got Time yes. Warner or whatever, like, well, I got to do it, yo. Yo, what up, man? It's a different channel, son. What up, on, man? What up? Watch the channel, son. Different plane now, man. It's all good. What up? All good, baby, in every hood, son. What up, yo? CNN, Network, Channel 10. It's on again. Yo. Yo. We are back once again. Again, this is the Channel 10 Podcast. It is I, the almighty ARR, ticking the building, and I'm alongside... Singa Superior. And today, we are joined by a very special guest, one of Baltimore's finest in the building, Joshua Harris. Say what's up to the people. How you doing? How's everybody doing out there? Yeah, yeah we're doing all right over here, man. And, um... You were just, um, I guess, before we, you know, you know, go back into everything. Um, um, Singa was just telling me that you were just coming out of a, um, a meeting. Yeah, yeah. There's always something happening in the community, um, where sometimes it's a scramble to figure out how the community should respond to things. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Um, are you able to go into the details of exactly what was going uh, on? Not specifically for this, okay. um, but. Um, just a lot of things happen in the community, particularly around development. And so there was um, a meeting called to figure out how we can get information 
um, put out there publicly so that people can be more aware and more engaged of what's happening. Because uh, a lot of things happen behind closed doors because people aren't privy to information or they don't have seats at the table. And so it's really about how we can um, better disseminate that information to the community so people can be educated on specific issues, not just this one, but issues as a whole. Um, you know, people look up and uh, they have a brand new apartment complex in their, in their neighborhood um, that's charging $2,000 a month in rent, and they never knew that it was coming. And others right. may have known for two years. Mm. Uh, uh, and so just bring people into the knowing, knowing where to find information and how we can get it out quicker. Okay, that's definitely a, um, a worthwhile endeavor to pursue um, because it is hard to find that information. And um, um, I guess to get to the point of, um, you know, where you are now um, when it comes to, you know, your political awareness and everything, I guess we like to take it back to the beginning. So you're originally from Chicago, correct? I am. I'm originally from Chicago and Baltimore is home now. Okay. What was it like uh, growing up there? I mean, Chicago is just a bigger version of Baltimore, you know, with mm -hmm. the good and the bad, unfortunately. Uh, and so, um, uh, a lot of people may not know this, but Chicago is quite possibly, uh, I like to say, the most segregated city in the country. Mm. Um, even the suburbs are segregated. Them. So um, understanding that dynamic and the reason and understanding the reasons that Chicago sees such high violence is a result directly related to that segregation, to that isolated poverty, uh, knowing that that, in fact, historically stems from Baltimore, knowing that Baltimore is the place where redlining was created where a hundred years ago they drew took a map took a red pen and said black people can only live here and here um and that created that was the beginning of isolated poverty and hyper segregation uh and we see the results of that today in baltimore and knowing that chicago took that and said we can do it and we can do it even better and that's what they did uh so when you see um, the violence and the poverty we see in Chicago is a direct result to policies put in place 100 years ago that cut off access to opportunities, that cut off access to resources, and said that these people aren't valued enough um, to be included in the overall process. And so um, Chicago and Baltimore have very similar parallel paths, um, if I might say so myself. Now, one thing that you said is that um, the difference between Chicago and Baltimore is that there's more of a of a sense of hope in Baltimore than there is in Chicago um, in terms of actually changing some of these things. So um, could you elaborate on that a bit more? Yeah, no, I think I mentioned that to you once before that um, um, Chicago, you see like the violence has gotten so extreme to where they're. Um, murdering, killing, and robbing people in broad daylight. And, I, and that, again, stems from hopelessness. Like, you have no other options. No one cares. No one's coming to our neighborhood. There's no opportunity for jobs. There's no, all the schools are closed down. I can't graduate or I can't get a diploma. So why even try? Why value life? And so uh, I don't think that Baltimore is to that point of hopelessness that we see uh, in Chicago just yet. I think that there's still an opportunity um, before we, the city gets there or to stop the city or prevent the city from getting to that that sense of hopelessness. And I think that's only going to come through, though, an investment in really people um, and making sure that uh, young people feel valued. They feel that their neighborhoods are valued um, because all that is a reflection of self-worth. Um, right. When you walk through neighborhoods and blocks and blocks of vacants every day, 
that's your environment. And so that is reflection and it has a uh, impact on how you value yourself and what you see as possible. Uh, if all you see is hopelessness and despair, um, then that's all you think that you have the ability to amount to. Uh, so making sure that we begin to make those investments from a policy standpoint and governmental standpoint to really build and rehabilitate communities uh, so that we don't have people living in the conditions where they're surrounded by what could look like war zones overseas, quite frankly, um, with the amount of vacants we have in Baltimore, and then making sure that we're providing uh, opportunities for people to be successful, whether that be through after-school programs, whether it be through employment, and making sure that people have the ability to get jobs or job training, job skills, uh, invested in people uh, so that they see their worth and what they can become and the, the possibility of their potential. Does that make sense? Let me know if I ramble on. No, that definitely uh, (laughs) makes a lot of sense. Um, I was going to follow up with, um, you know, how was it that you were able to kind of overcome that hopelessness and and that situation and, you know, um, and find the self-worth, you know, coming from that type of environment? Well, yeah, no, definitely. So for me, uh, and and everybody has their own out, if you will, um, I, I come from a relatively... uh, a tough background where I've had family members who've done time in jail and uh, seen a lot of stuff. And so for me, honestly, I, I tell folks all the time, uh, it was a, a recreation center to start that was open and funded to save my life. And I went and I discovered basketball. Uh, and so then basketball, uh, I know it's the tale that we hate to see the stereotype, um, but it gave me my out. Um, because of basketball, I was able to focus, and I knew I wanted to keep playing basketball, and it opened up a world of possibilities for me, where I would travel to play, to, to play in different places, so I met different people. And then... What's up, Channel 10 Podcast listeners? Unfortunately, at this part in the interview, we did experience some technical difficulties, which resulted in some of the audio being lost, but we were able to continue, so we're going to pick right back up from that point. Keith Ellison and political focus and him being the first um, openly Islamic congressman. Yeah. So I helped, I volunteered on his campaign in college for a little bit. That was my first really introduction. And I didn't really take, I just volunteered, handed out some literature, worked at a poll, and didn't do much. But um, that was my first, I guess, political involvement. And I really, I'm not someone who who's wanted to be in politics, though, because that was the question you'd ask. Um, when did I, uh, like, begin or... Or how did uh, going to Augsburg, a smaller school, shape my view? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that um, that was kind of my first introduction to looking at things from a policy standpoint, but not even from a policy standpoint, just doing anything politically and beginning to even look at politics at all. Um, and so that all came through attending Augsburg in a smaller school and knowing people who were involved. And, um, and, and it really helped to shape my perspective of things for sure. Mm-hmm. And um, I did read somewhere that you uh, you did um, what a semester or two abroad at Oslo, right, Norway? Yes, I um, I left uh, Augsburg, which was a, a small Norwegian Lutheran institution, um, and because we had a large Norwegian um, Norwegian uh, student population, I uh, got some friends who were from Norway, and uh, I uh, wanted to visit. And I needed some more credits and things. And so I attended the University of Oslo there. And I also chased some hoop dreams and went out there and um, worked out with some basketball teams and spent some time there. 
um, and uh, learned a lot, which further expanded my view and my perspective as a global citizen. Uh, at the University of Oslo, there was students from 83 different countries represented when I was there. Uh, wow. So being able to have those conversations with people um, was really eye-opening. And you got to be somebody, too, that's willing to learn, um, willing to listen, and willing to uh, be uncomfortable. And so a lot of times I'll go and I'll, I'll speak to people, young people in particular, and um, they don't like things when it's not normal or what they're used to. Um, but we really grow and stretch ourselves when we become uncomfortable. Right. And so pushing through that culture shock, pushing through those cultural differences and learning that we're all people um, and humans when it comes down to it and that we have um, very similarities, um, but we just have cultural differences and embracing those differences to learn um, was huge uh, again. And also taking note, Norway is one of the places that is a, a successful um, model of socialism, which sometimes scares people. Um, to hear them say that, but um, they have universal health care, which is great. They have an actual rehabilitative prison system um, where individuals that get in trouble there and have to go to prison are not punished forever, but they're actually rehabilitated into society to be productive to citizen, uh, citizens. And so um, there's a lot of great things that we could take note from uh, in Norway. Mm. Now, um, you said, like, um, you know, putting yourself in, in different in uh, difficult situations is, you know, the way that you grow. Um, what were, you know, when you first touched down there, what were some of the um, things that really provided that culture shock for you? I'm just curious. I mean, shucks. And when, you, when you're overseas and no one's speaking the language that you're used to, right. that's a culture shock. Um, just the difference in the food. I, I had, and I, and I played basketball and I had some friends that played overseas and stuff. And, uh, I actually had some friends who came back because they didn't like the food. Wow. Uh, they, they turned down checks and came back to the States and decided to not play because they didn't like the food and there wasn't a certain type of food or drinks available that they were used to. Uh, and so those are things where opportunities for us, little things to really grow and stretch themselves or, Oh, uh, they dress different, or uh, I don't like that. So little things that make you uncomfortable because it's outside of your box. And we all have our boxes that we're in um, and our norms, things that we're used to. Uh, and so just embracing them and being willing to push past them uh, is part of that uncomfortability and growing yourself as a person, no matter what the situation is. I put myself in uncomfortable situations to this day um, that sometimes I don't want to. Uh, you know, uh, but you have to to stretch yourself and to grow and expand your potential and your capacity. Yeah, definitely. Um, and coming back to the states, um, what what led you to to Baltimore? Um, I came to Baltimore to work for um, a community service fraternity that uh, provides mentorships and scholarships um, to young African American boys and men. Um, Alpha Phi Alpha's international headquarters is here in Baltimore. Uh, and so that is where I work. I came to work for Alpha Phi Alpha. Okay. And um, I guess what were some of the first initiatives that, that you got involved in here and what were like some of the, the, the problems that you tackled when you, when you got here? Well, yeah, no, um, I, I, um, I guess one of the, some of the earliest things that, one of the things that piqued my interest growing up in Chicago, um, seeing how, gentrification happened now places that were once 
really bad places to live in are now really nice places to live in. I was curious about that and how neighborhoods and cities were developed. And then I was also trying to find a place to live, and I found that it was really expensive to rent, but much more affordable to own. And that further piqued my interest in real estate. And why is it that way? Why does it cost more to rent than it does to own? And why do people think it's cheaper to rent and not know that they end up paying more in the long term? And so I began to do research on Baltimore and Baltimore's neighborhoods um, as I looked to purchase a home and things of that sort. And uh, really understand the history of the neighborhoods and the makeup and try to find out what was going on as I looked to purchase a house as well. Um, and so in that, uh, I, I purchased a house and, um, I began to get really involved in the neighborhood association to understand how decisions were made. Um, a lot of people don't understand the power of neighborhood associations, uh, and the say that they have when it comes to things like zoning and permits and what gets approved when someone wants to do something in the neighborhood. And so really asking those questions and going to several meetings where usually I was the youngest person in the room and many times the only person of color in the room. Um, decisions are being made about entire communities. Um, and sometimes a room that was not reflective of the actual community. Um, and so I began to do work in the community. I, a couple of neighbors and I, um, saw what was happening in the neighborhood and saw the potential of gentrification or the possibility of gentrification coming and decided we need to do something to uh, counter it. Um, a lot of people may think, or some people may think gentrification is a good thing. Um, for me, I view gentrification as the spatial recognition of economic inequality. Uh, and so basically when properties or spaces um, that were once devalued, all of a sudden have value and worth. And so uh, in order to expand upon that value, the people that exist there have to be put somewhere else. Um, and so for me, it was about understanding that when developing neighborhoods and communities, if you're not focused on empowering people, you're only dispro displacing problems rather than creating solutions. Uh, so you're moving it from one place to another place uh, and not empowering people to grow and develop and sustain themselves as infrastructure around them grows and develops. And so um, for me, we begin to do work in what we call creative placemaking, uh, where you focus on creating an environment of belonging versus disbelonging to bring people to the table and create a bond of community so that then we can focus on education, workforce development, and empowering people through that process. But we first have to make a connection and a communal bond so that people feel that you care, that there's a trust factor that exists there um, that will ultimately, in the long run, if focused on help to empower people as the neighborhood, help to empower and educate people as neighborhoods develop and change so that one, they're aware, and then two, that they're able to sustain themselves uh, as that uh, neighborhood develops and changes. Mm -hmm. Does that now, make sense? Yeah, that makes uh, a lot of sense because you were talking about uh, before, like access to information when it comes to certain things. And, um, you know, I know that the neighborhood that I live in has an association and, you know, every once in a while I'll get the flyer on my door and it's like, I know I should go because that's the only place to get the information about, you know, exactly what's happening here. Um, but, you know, a lot of people don't even know that these neighborhood associations even exist. It's just like you're kind of living somewhere, but not necessarily rooted to the community. Um, which eventually, you know, can make you more susceptible to being pushed out. So that makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and 
Yeah, I mean, and to to piggyback off of that, um, I, yeah, you you bring up a good point because uh, when it comes to these neighborhood alliances, creative alliances, and associations, um, and various boards that um that uh, Joshua, I think that you are that you uh, you are a member of like about uh, several different kinds of boards and alliances, I believe. Um, how does one find out about these alliances um do some of them do they kind of play invisible to kind of keep people of color um out of them uh i don't know that they play invisible i think that it's just that if you aren't in certain circles or have certain relationships you may not be privy to the information um it's kind of like one of those things where if you play sports or uh if you're a sneaker guy you know all the sneaker people. You know who's talking about it on the blogs and you, uh, uh, writing about shoes and different things. And so that's your circle. Uh, and so in many cases, we just aren't in those circles. And so it takes people who are in those circles to bring back information and expose others to what's happening um, and bring them to the table to disseminate and help uh, provide that information for people. Um and so that's what I, I, I focus on, and that's what I like to do is make sure that I'm connecting people and organizations to resources that they need so they can know about what's happening. Mm-hmm. Now, um, how did how did your your um, your your activism and your community work, I guess, um, how did that progress into into political aspirations? Um, you know, I'm an, I like to tell people I'm an accidental politician. I was just somebody who was going up to the recreation center in my neighborhood, um, playing with kids, coaching, doing some things there, doing a, a community resource fair here and there, doing back to school festivals and, and different things. And in that work, um, I was perfectly happy and perfectly fine serving my community and figuring out ways to build. But in that work, elected officials began to show up to events that were happening and that I was hosting or organizing. And they would show up for ribbon cuttings and photo opportunities, uh, which is fine. That's good that they're there to support. But then I would use it as an opportunity to um, talk to them. And to pick their brain and talk to them about solutions and things that I was learning about and history of the city that I was learning about and things that weren't being addressed. Um, and, and talk to them about some of the solutions, many of which I put in my platform during my mayoral campaign. Uh, and in those conversations with many of the elected officials, um, I began to realize, uh, well, first, in those conversations, they would uh, give me what I call the deer kitten when they'd be like, oh, good ideas. We'll be in touch. Uh, and I never heard anything, never heard anything follow up. And I reach out to offices and never got uh, a response back. Um, and so I recognized two things that one, uh, they were disconnected from the average politician. I mean, from the average person in the city. And two, they were just really concerned about their next election and staying elected more so than they were about the next generation and creating real change. Uh, and so in that, after I realized that it wasn't about being smart enough and having the best ideas, it was about reaching people. And can we reach people and let people know um, what, how government can function for them and how it's supposed to work? Um, rather than waiting for someone else to step up to the plate and do it, uh, I decided to do it myself. Uh, said no more waiting uh, I'm going to do it alright because I was surprised like um, you know just you telling that story um, that you didn't become you know more jaded towards the whole political process um, but you instead kind of embraced it and took it upon your own to, to actually um, do something there um, now when you first um, I guess 
delved into it. Um, you started off as a Democrat. Mm-hmm. Okay, and then um, what led to the switch to the Green Party? Well, yeah, I wanted to. Uh, I want to touch on the fact uh, what you said about me embracing it, the process. I think that yeah, you can view things two ways, and as a uh, I had mentors and coaches that used to say there's two types of people, those that watch and those that do. Uh, and so uh, many people would take the route and say, oh, complain, oh, that's how all politicians are, that's they are. And very few people would step up to the plate and say that I'm going to do it for the right reasons uh, and be the opposite of what is the norm here. And so that's what I wanted to do. I want to try to change the system. And that's still what I'm working to do every single day uh, is to change the system and not make that the norm. And it needs people um, – it needs for people to buy into that reality that not all people who start out running for political office are in it just for themselves or just to get elected, but really in it to make, create a change. Uh, and so, and, and people buying into that vision is what's going to ultimately get us to the point to where we have elected officials who actually represent the people uh, and not corporate interests. Um, but back to your question about me starting out as a Democrat, uh, and then changing to the Green Party. Uh, Baltimore is a democratic town, and um, it is a town where you will be uh, ignored and not paid attention to if you're not a Democrat. Uh, and so um, for me, I was always torn in deciding the fact of whether or not I wanted to run as an independent because um, understanding the history of the Democratic Party in Baltimore uh, and what's been enacted and what has happened uh, what decisions have been made here. Um, the Democratic Party has been in control for six decades, essentially, and yet we've seen little to no change, particularly for people of color and in communities of color. Uh, and so um, for me, it was about assessing, understanding the history of Baltimore, uh, and then, two, assessing uh, where um, my values and views were most reflected. And so being a Democrat gave me the opportunity to have seats at tables and be invited to things that I probably wouldn't have otherwise been invited to, um, which began to create a buzz around me. Um, but then, too, the, the Green Party was a party that was reflective of um, my views. It's a party that has been active in the fight for social justice, including racial justice, economic justice, and environmental justice, which are things that are all near and dear to my heart. Uh, it's been a party... Um, that has been looking to embrace diversity and differences, uh, whether you look at the 2008, it being the first major party to run two women as their presidential candidates, where they ran um, Senator Cynthia McKinney out of Georgia as the presidential candidate with uh, Rosa Clemente as her vice presidential candidate in 2008. Um, that is huge um, for a party to step up and say, yes, let's do this. Uh, not only two women, but two women of color. Uh, and so and we know that Rosa Clemente has been very active in the Black Lives Matter movement and the fight for um, social justice or racial justice in particular. Uh, and so to me, um, the values and views um, were very near and dear to my heart and most reflected what I wanted to be representative of myself uh, and my brand. Uh, so I decided um, to run as a Green Party candidate. Was there mm -hmm. any fear putting yourself out there like that? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, at, the, at a meeting I was at earlier, people asked me that same question because um, the Green Party isn't necessarily the most popular party. It's a third party. Um, and uh, it's not the popular thing to do always. And, um, and so... 
I think that we need people, though, who are strong enough to step up to the plate and do what's different, to take those initial steps, to really begin to draw others into and say, oh, I can do that too. I mean, whether you talk about the integration of baseball and having somebody like Jackie Robinson who was willing to step up to the plate and go out there and take that abuse um, to open it up for everyone or any other situation, but someone has to step out there and be bold enough to be different uh, and do things differently. And uh, that's what I did. And it was something I had to think about. And, and I was able to make that decision again because I'm not someone who's wanted to be a politician my whole life. Uh, so I, there was no fear of me um, ruining my political potential, whereas there's a lot of people who won't do that because they don't want to ruin their political capital. Uh, and so for me, uh, it was also questioning and deciding, was this about me winning or was this about me being revolutionary and being different? Uh, and so a lot of folks will say they want to be revolutionary and that they want a revolution, but nobody really wants to be a revolutionary because it's not popular to be a revolutionary until after the fact, after everything is said and done. Uh, you know, nobody wants to be that guy. Well, ask Nelson Mandela. Nobody wants to be um, in jail, um, uh, not liked, ridiculed. No one wants to be put in those situations. Um, but um, but everyone acts like they do. And so I had to answer that question myself. Um, what is most reflective of what I want to see come from this in a statement that I want to make and a statement on principle? Is it a sta statement of principle or is it a statement of power and me seeking power? Uh, and so uh, that's definitely a conversation I had to do. It wasn't easy. Um, I, I've been very, I, at this point, I had been very involved um, politically with a lot of Democrats in the city and had worked a Democratic campaign and gotten a delegate elected or helped to get a delegate elected uh, and had worked with Democratic Congress members. Uh, so I was advised against it by, uh, by a lot of people. Um, and so I had to make the tough decision to do it. You know? mm. Now, uh, uh, you mentioned in, I think, uh, the, uh, your roughly speaking interview that Rosa Clemente um, played, uh, acted as, as, a, as, a, as a political mentor um, were there other um, people who uh, who played like a big role in uh, in your political career up to this point? Um, I mean, there's several people, um, different different people who, when it comes to policy and really understanding policy. But for me, um, one of the first people that I reached out to um, um, when I was deciding was Rosa Clemente, uh, and uh, actually before that, Umi Salah. Uh, of the Dream Defenders. He's executive director of the Dream Defenders out of Florida, which they occupied the governor's office after Trayvon Martin was killed. He's a good friend of mine. Uh, and uh, I told him that I was considering running, and he was like, you need to talk to Rosa. Um, and so I called Rosa, and I had met her before for, in Minneapolis, actually, years ago uh, when I was in school, and we did a Vices to Versus hip-hop conference. And she came, and she was one of the speakers there uh, at the conference, and um, met her there and then with Dead Press, and they closed out the weekend. So it was a great experience. But I got the opportunity to talk to her and pick her brain, and she provided some insight to me um, as I was making my decision to run. And so, But there's several people who played a role in, in that. Um, the, the delegate, uh, Delegate Charles Sidnor, who I helped uh, worked his campaign to help get him elected. Uh, he's someone who um, did lots of work. Uh, there was lots of people who influenced me and um, were, I guess, mentors politically to me, um, probably too many to name. Uh, and I still, I, I'm a person who believes that we should have multiple mentors. Uh, and so uh, I have mentors for different things. And so there's people who are great policy people. I, and I tell people this too all the time. I hate politics. 
But I love policy because that's what positively impacts people's lives. Right. Politics is the stuff that that shouldn't exist of I don't like this person because of this or that, so I'm not going to support this. Policy is actually the concrete changes and solutions that people bring to the table. And there is a difference. But uh, unfortunately, you have to understand politics to even be able to get policy implemented. Uh, so I have multiple mentors in multiple different uh, ways and still do, and are constantly accruing new mentors, if you will. Mm. Now, um, your, your grandmother uh, also, uh, she was like a union organizer too, right? Yes, she was. Uh, she was a union organizer in Chicago, and that played a big role too. Um, and just my, my willingness in, to serve, uh, mm. give back to my community overall, Watching her do that work uh, was extremely powerful, um, and she was always, to this day, she still is, uh, they never retire. There's always a meeting for them to go to and something for them to plan and organize around. Um, somebody's trying to cut the minimum wage or someone's trying to take the workers' rights away, and so she's very involved. And um, She was president of uh, ASME Council 31 in the state of Illinois, which is actually— um, she had the pleasure of working or having um, a, a young man who many might know as President Barack Obama, uh, who was a community organizer to help organize around fair wages and workers' rights. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I, I watched a lot of things that she did. I watched her work um, around apartheid and um, with Nelson Mandela in South Africa and what was happening there and many things. I didn't know what was happening until I was older. I thought about it. I was like, oh, this is what she was doing. Um, but yeah, it was a huge part and played a huge role in some of the, my passion and commitment to give back. Mm -hmm. mm. Now, um, I guess going back to, to what you were saying about policy, um, one of the big things that really struck me that you brought to the table was the uh, public banking, um, where um, I guess the money from the city would go into a bank that's that's in the city and we would get all the interest from it. Um, so I was just wondering where you got that idea from and how that stemmed and, you know, why isn't that something that, you know, most people had ever really heard of before? Oh, yeah. No, I made that all up myself. Um, no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, again, this is something of um, me being kind of a nerd and researching um, things that have been done in other places. Uh, and there's no need to reinvent the wheel. There's a lot of things that exists already that can be implemented it just takes people who have the commitment to one find them and then two the willpower to implement them and so public banking is something that exists it's something that um has been a lot of studies done around uh, that has been proven successful uh, and so um i had uh, the luxury of being mentored by uh, people like dr margaret flowers who also ran for senate here in maryland uh, Kevin Zeese, who's a longtime advocate uh, and uh, and ha actually has been a huge advocate, too, for legalization of marijuana for nearly 20 years now, um, not just for the medicinal uses, but understanding the uh, impacts of the war on drugs in communities of color and what that means. But uh, these folks who um, helped me and exposed me to different policy, and then some of it was research on my own of... Uh, just reading, watching documentaries, reading books, reading articles, and looking at things to find out about things. And so public banking is something that uh, it already exists in the state of North Dakota, uh, and they've seen great successes with that. So I just wanted to bring that model here to Baltimore and, and show what the po possibility is for 
uh, one, we know that we live in a capitalistic society, so we're not just going to be able to remove profit-driven world, but what we can do if we can save money and generate more revenue um, to be able to make other investments. And so that's what public banking gives us the ability to do, uh, and it's really a great concept. Um, basically, understanding uh, that banks get rich off of other people's money. Uh, and so knowing that right now our city's budget in Baltimore is sitting in a bank on Wall Street, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, choose one. It's sitting in that bank, and that bank is getting rich off of our tax dollars just for it to sit there. And so if if we were, and then they take that money and they make investments with it, and they make their CEOs and their investors wealthy, uh, and the city doesn't see return on it. Uh, and if we were to simply just take our money away from that bank, on Wall Street and put it in our own Baltimore City Public Bank that was managed and ran um, by people hired by the city uh, to take our money and make the exact same investments with it that they do on Wall Street. But every penny of interest earned, instead of going to some rich guy's pocket, comes back to the city of Baltimore. And so um, public banking is a great opportunity and something that uh, I hope that the current administration and the city council um, chooses to pursue um, because it's an opportunity for us to really build wealth strategically and have the money um, necessary to be able to make investments uh, in other parts of the city. Or, of course, we know it comes back to where we don't have the money in most cases. So public banking gives us the ability to leverage our own budget and create wealth within the city. Okay. Now, um, I definitely think that, you know, you brought you know that idea to the forefront of people's consciousness. So it's definitely something that you know, um, I think people will look into and, you know, um, it's on people's radar now. Um, I was wondering, do you currently have um, strong relationships with the uh, new administration in the city? Um, no, I, don't, I wouldn't say. I mean, I know them. They know me, of course. Right. Uh, but I, I have some relationships with the city council, but not with the mayor's office. Uh, everyone keeps asking me if I'm going to work for or with the mayor's office in the current administration. Uh, I'm not opposed to that. Again, uh, not being someone who's wanted to be a politician my whole life, I'm about solutions. And whoever implements it, uh, it doesn't matter to me as long as it gets done. Uh, and so uh, I'm willing to work with anyone who's serious about making sure that our city works for all of us uh, and bringing great ideas and uh, great policy solutions to the table. Uh, and so uh, ultimately that decision isn't up to me. Um, that will be up to the new mayor uh, and her cabinet uh, if they're interested in having someone with the ideas and the vision um, to really help move the city forward, like myself, uh, to be a part of their administration. Okay. That's mm -hmm. dope. So um, I guess, um, you know, currently, um, you know, since the election has passed and everything, uh, what what uh, projects and initiatives are you are you working on now that you can speak about? Oh yeah, no, absolutely. I'm uh, I'm back to work in the community um, in just a few days. Uh, I have my own nonprofit, of course. I spoke on it earlier called Holland's Creative Placemaking, and we're having our fourth annual Jingle Jam uh, holiday community celebration. Uh, and so we're going to be giving away toys to families in need, giving away coats to those in need. We're going to have food and drink, and um, we're going to have a big community celebration. And so that's going to be fun. Um, Holland's Creative Placemaking is going to be growing, and we're restructuring our board uh, and our organization right now so that we can maximize our growth potential. Uh, I'm going to be launching uh, what we call Impact Baltimore. Uh, 
and that's going to be initiative here. We're working with some former Senator Bernie Sanders um, campaign staffers, his former director of African-American outreach, uh, Senator Nina Turner and Dr. Cornell West sit on the national board. And we want to continue civic engagement and keep people engaged beyond just election season. Uh, so we want to train community members on where to find information, uh, how they can organize and lobby effectively on behalf of issues in their community, um, where to go to um, with concerns and, and all of that, that, those things that aren't often known by everyday citizens. Uh, we want to teach them and train them on how to do grassroots organizing uh, and communicate with people and go into the community and really begin to build um, their own political power. Uh, and so that's something that I'm excited that's coming in the new year. Uh, and I'm sure there'll be other things that I'm going to be working on. But those are the two things right now uh, that I'm working on for sure. OK, when do you find time to sleep? <laughs> uh, uh, whenever I'm not taking notes and planning and trying to figure out um, how to uh, improve the city. Um, because there's still plenty of work to do, even though I'm not in, in, in office. Um, right. There's more than enough work to do, for sure. Uh, and this is something, too. We can figure out how to create equity and equitable city and equitable development uh, and economic development um, that is built upon addressing issues of social justice. We can scale that up to the state level and to our nation, of course. Of course. But we have to start locally and think globally. Right, definitely. Um, and, you know, another thing that you talk about um, a lot um, are the arts. And um, I always thought that was kind of interesting coming from more of a sports guy. <laughs> um, but, you know, I definitely appreciate your, your, your dedication to the arts and, you know, what it can do for uh, communities. Um, so I was wondering, like, uh, what, what locally, um, you know, in terms of art and music and everything are you um, checking for now? Well, I'm excited. Uh, actually, the Be More Beat Club has a big show coming up um, in the next week, I think. Yeah, next week. Uh, I'm a huge music fan. I love music. I'm not musically inclined, but I love music. J. Cole just dropped his new album, Um So I'm about to dive into that. Um, but uh, I talk about arts a lot because it's a huge um, component of bringing people together. Um, because we all love art and we all love music. And so, and for me, art is so many different things. So for me, art was sports. For someone else, it could actually be music. Someone else, it could be actually be painting. Um, but art is much more than our contemporary view of the term art. And it's so many things. Uh, and so um, I think that's part of what exposes us to things. Bring, that's part of what brings us together and it's part of what opens up doors to expose us to the world of possibilities. Uh, and so art is huge uh, when it comes to really building a sense of community. Uh, and historically, when we look at movements, great movements, um, there's usually some form of uh, art or cultural movement that, that happens before that political movement occurs, if you will. Mm. That's right. You have to have a soundtrack to the movement and, you know, um, all of the, the visual art kind of provide like a time capsule for everything that's that's happened. So um, I definitely um, get where you're coming from with that. Um, and, and also really quickly, too, we have to understand that art influences cultural movements. Mm. So whether you look at the civil rights movement uh, and folks like Muhammad Ali and, and Harry Belafonte, who were artists in their own right. Muhammad Ali, of course, an artist uh, in the ring uh, and through sports. 
and then of course Harry Belafonte, a musician, uh, and they use their influence because people love them for their art. Uh, and they had an audience that many other people did not have, and they used it um, to support the civil rights movement and to push forward that agenda. And so uh, I believe artists today, whether locally or nationally, have the exact same opportunity and, quite frankly, responsibility uh, to do similar work. And uh, I'm excited to be in the age of Kendrick Lamar and a J. Cole uh, and a Chance the Rapper, folks who are really not just uh, producing art, um, but using their stage and their platform as artists um, to drive people in a direction um, that is more conscious and more aware of being civically engaged. Right. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, and it's kind of interesting because, um, you know, when it comes to hip hop, especially, um, there are a lot of complaints about, you know, a lot of the content that comes through in the music. But when you look at, you know, hip hop in 2005 and 2006, Versus, you know, where it's at now, there's a lot more of, of a conscious awareness coming through, um, you know, and I think I think the life influences the artists and then in turn, the artists go back and influence more of the life um, as people become more aware, the artists become more aware and then they make more people aware. So, um, you know, I definitely, you know, see that progression in the music. Um, I'm trying to think um, J. Cole dropped. You have Kendrick, um, Killer Mike. um as a, uh, there's a whole lot of people. Um, um, anything else in your in your playlist right now? Uh, in my playlist, I'm trying to get caught up on my right. playlist. See what I missed in the last <laughs> year of campaigning. Right. <laughs> uh, but I like music. I like all sorts of music, even um, beyond hip hop. I'm just a music fan. I think that music really can shape us and move us and inspire us to do different things. Uh -huh. uh, so yeah. Uh, there's a whole lot, and I got to get caught up on it. Sure. And um, I was wondering, too, when it comes to music, um, you know, the, the thing between um, uh, Baltimore and Chicago, you know, we have the, the Baltimore club music, and Chicago is known for the house music. So I was wondering, yeah. like, did you have the, uh, the house music influence coming up, and, and, and do you gravitate towards the Baltimore sound any? Uh, absolutely. I mean, I like both of them. They both have their very distinct characteristics. Mm -hmm. I did. I grew up listening to house music and uh, had a red mixtape and a blue mixtape um, with the DJs on it and um, recorded the mixes on the radio when they played them, oh, yeah. uh, house music and all of that. Uh, and so and uh, even used to footwork a little bit to house music. <laughs> <laughs> So I uh, definitely uh, influenced me as a part of my upbringing, for sure. Uh, but I just love music, again. So I do like Baltimore house music. Uh, they're very, it's, it's actually, I guess, kind of similar to Chicago house music. Um, yeah. And so I definitely like it. That's what's up, man. Um, and I guess um, I'm, in, I'm in closing. Um, is there anything else that, that you would like to put out there for the people? Um, when, when is your jingle jam? Um, so it's actually going to be Saturday, mm -hmm. the 17th of December. Yeah, Saturday, okay. the 17th of December at 12 o'clock. It's at 1200 West Baltimore Street. Um, and if anyone has donations or would like to volunteer or knows a family in need, they can email us or visit hollandsart.org. Uh, and uh, we can help them out and connect them with the right folks then uh, through there. Um, and so, yeah, no, I just appreciate the opportunity 
opportunity um, to talk to you guys and to thank you for doing an in-depth interview. I think this is probably the most in-depth interview I've ever done, actually. Oh, wow. <laughs> Asking me questions and really getting to know kind of who is Josh uh, uh, and where he come from and what, what does he stand for. So I appreciate it. There's plenty of work for me to continue to do, uh, even not being in office. Again, Definitely. it's about uh, so I'm not going anywhere. Uh, I'm always going to be, uh, as Cole would say, a man of the people, not above, but equal. Mm. Mm. I think I think that's the that's the, the defining quote right there, man. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, is there any chance uh, we will see you back on the campaign the campaign trail in the next several years? Well, I mean, we got midterm elections coming up in 2018, and then 2020 is around the corner. Uh, honestly, I haven't decided um, just yet uh, if I want to run again. Campaigning is a lot of work. Uh, there's a whole lot that goes into it. You got to have a good team. Uh, and uh, We did a lot of work to make a lot of noise in my campaign with a, a very small budget and very few people. Uh, and so it's really about whether or not we can bring the right team together and whether or not there's a need uh, for me to run. Again, if someone else is implementing solutions and doing the right things, I am perfectly okay um, staying on the ground and doing work in the community. But if there's a need and the people call for it and feel that there's a need, um, then I'm here to serve. Mm -hmm. uh, well, definitely, um, you know, we'll definitely be looking out for you out here, um, you know, in the community. I know that you do a lot. and I know that you, you know, spent a lot of time knocking on a lot of doors um, and, you know, your effort definitely got the word out on a lot of different policy um, that, you know, might not have been in the forefront of people's minds. And, you know, to the point where um, I think uh, you got, what, 10 percent of the vote as a third party? Uh, somewhere it's fluctuated. The numbers are different between 10 and 13 percent, depending on um, where the numbers are coming from. Right. Uh, so there's been that, that question, but 22,000 votes roughly. Okay. I mean that that shook up. I think the whole uh, the whole you know situation in the city. You know, and I think it definitely um, let people know that you know something has to change because. Um, if you don't change it, somebody else is going to come and, and, and they will. Um, and you, you show that it is uh, possible. And the next time around, if things aren't right, then that numbers can definitely go up. <laughs> so, um, you know, we appreciate all your work and all your effort. And thank you so much for, um, you know, giving us your time and gracing our, our platform here, man. Really appreciate it. No, thank you. I appreciate it. And one last thing I'd like to say is that um, I'm a millennial like you guys. And so, uh, the largest voting block uh, or the, the largest constituency, shall I say, in the city and across most of the country is young people, 18 to 30. Uh, and so we really yield a lot of power um, that we have yet to transfer into political power. And so uh, I'm excited to see young people get more involved in, in politics and understanding at least how it intersects with their daily lives. And so continue to do the work that you do um, because it's reaching a lot of people and hopefully educating people on how they can be involved and what they can do to try to change the system. So, again, thank you for the opportunity. No problem, man. And with that, Channel 10 Podcast, channel10podcast.com, and we out. Peace. Peace. Feeling this here. Yeah, son. You feel it, man. Roll up, son. You gotta just do it, yo. Yeah, man. Yo, roll up, man. It's a different channel, son. Roll up. Hold on, man. Roll up. Watch the channel, son.
Different plane now, man. It's all good. Well, what up? All good, baby. In every hood, son. Well, what up? Yeah. CNN, Network Channel 10. It's on again. Street niggas is grown men.